Ready for Love Radio. This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. Today, we're going to be talking to Rabbi David Cohen. He's a rabbi, a therapist, a podcaster, and an author. He's busy, doesn't he? (laughs) Okay. He works with many couples, helping them to strengthen their communication skills. And you all know how important I feel communication skills are. He's the author of the book, We're Almost There, Living with Patience, Perseverance, and Purpose. It was published in 2016 and presents a vision and pathway for confronting life's challenges. He's a graduate of the Columbia Law School and the University of North Texas Programming Counseling. David, it's awesome to have you with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nikki, for having me on your program. I tell you what, I, I think we, you know, for some reason we don't seem to know how to communicate anymore. I, I don't know if we ever really knew the best ways to communicate, but, you know, it seems like the more technology we get, the less we know how to communicate one-on-one. Do you agree with that? I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. Unfortunately, there are many benefits, of course, to the use of technology. We can communicate effectively, expeditiously, quickly with others, but the ability to genuinely listen and hear the voice inflection to sometimes see the face of the person communicating with us to get the broader context that is, that's often terribly lost in the current milieu. Well, you know, too, I, I learned one day, it was, it was an eye-opener, that, you know, the, the biggest part of communication is listening. And I think people don't realize that. They think the biggest part of communication is, is you know, getting your side heard. And it's like, you know, how about just shut your mouth and listen? <laughs> you know, listen to what the other person has to say, and you know, just well, and and it, it's so big too. When when you're face to face with the person, watch them as they're talking to you. You know, watch their their facial expressions, watch their body language, take in the whole presentation of of it, not just the words, but watch everything because. So often, they may be saying one thing with their words, but every other part of them is saying something else. You know what I mean? A hundred percent, Nikki, a hundred percent. I think it's interesting that God created us with two ears and one mouth. There's, yes. a, there's a reason for that. There's a message that we're supposed to probably listen mm-hmm. at least twice as much as we speak. Yeah, yeah. It's... um. It's it's interesting, and I, I think, like I said, I think so many people just, well, and and I, I don't remember, I saw a beautiful meme about it yesterday, but it's it's like, you know, listen with the intent of of hearing, not with being ready to reply. 
you know, because so often the it's like the person is just sitting there, just just waiting to get get in what they want to say, but you, you just get the feeling they didn't hear a word you said. You know, it, it didn't sink in. They were just waiting to to get their part said to you. You know, it's like okay, can can you just and and I've even said this to people sometimes. Go just. Hold on a second and just let, let me say it again and just let it sink in for you. <laughs> just, 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 just sit there and just, just hold on and just let me, let me say this and just listen to the words. Don't, don't say anything. I don't need to hear anything back. Just, just listen. <laughs> you know, just, just let it sink in. <laughs> you know? Like you need to put them under a right. the spell. <laughs> no, I think it's true. I think I think a lot of times there's maybe there's anxiety even in people who are trying. They don't want to forget what they're about to say. Maybe maybe that plays some role in it. But I do think yeah. that it's one of the most challenging things in life to just be present with another person. Certainly, the therapeutic yeah. process is very much uh, part and parcel of that as being able to to be present and to hear and to listen and and almost like not to run to respond and not to try to fix what you're hearing. And there's yeah. so many layers and so much depth to every statement that we potentially could parse and, and unravel a lot of what we hear, but it takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy that not everybody is willing to invest in. Two, two questions for you with that. Um, the first one, if you, how would you describe being present when you're talking to somebody? Because if, if, I, I bet you that there's a lot of people that say, oh, sounds great, sounds great. What do you mean? So, I mean, a perfect example in the current milieu is most of us have phones that we're constantly attached to on our body, somewhere on our being. We could be sitting at a home. Our phones are usually somewhere in reach or in grasp. And right. the part of it is put the phone down, you know, put it away. Yes. It shouldn't be, you see often you'll be in a restaurant, you'll see people, and they'll be sitting across from each other. They'll each have their phones on the table. Why are their phones on the table? I mean, to really... Right. It's, it's, it's really just contextual. Like I'm showing the person, I'm present with you. You're the most important thing on my mind right now. I have nothing else going on. It's symbolic. Right. Even if you're not going to pick up the phone, but just, just it shouldn't be there. There should be nothing else kind of in your line of vision except the person that you're trying to listen to. Exactly. Exactly. Put, put it in your pocket. Put it in your purse. Just put it away. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's like I just want it out of your reach. Just put it away. <laughs> so, and and you know it's funny when you tell people that and they look at you funny. It's like no 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 no, out of your reach. Put it in your pocket. <laughs> right? No, it's it's hard. We're we're addicted to these devices. I mean, there's addictive aspects to them. There's been studies about such things, and yeah. it's 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 tricky. It's very hard for us. Like we very much. I happen to be a, a Sabbath observer, so every Every Saturday from sundown tonight until sundown Saturday night, I don't use any technology whatsoever. And I found myself at certain points in time, I'd be like looking in my suit pocket for my phone, and then I'd be like, oh, wait, it's Saturday. I don't use my phone today. But it's, it's so addictive, it's so powerful, that it's something that we have to consciously work on. I think all of us have to work on it. It's, um, I, was, I was with friends, and we were doing something, and we went in to, to, have, um, to have a meal, and and they're all everybody's sitting down and they're all putting their phone on the table like like right to the right side. It was 
you know, and and they all look at me, and I'm like, I left mine in the car. <laughs> and it's like, really? We're having no, it's, dinner. I don't need my phone. You know? No, you're you like, know, 100%. 100%. There are times when I go out with my wife, and I literally just leave my phone at home. Because I wanna, I want the time to be, you know, not not filled with distraction. I really, that's ideal if one's able to do that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like I I I don't, you know, people know that I'm I'm away for the weekend and they're not gonna call me and bug me and it's it's not, you know, business can wait till Monday and I'm going to eat and I I don't need to know what's happening on Facebook. I don't care. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So, but yeah, and people look at you funny. They they just look at you strange. It's like, no, I don't need it right now. So yeah, but and, but yeah, I, I get a kick out of those kind of expressions. It's like, no, don't right. need it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm the one with the business. <laughs> so, right. And and they're gonna listen to this and and go. She's talking about me. <laughs> so, mm. That's funny. But, you know, I, I just don't, yep, it, it's just, it's funny. It really is. So, tell us, how did you become a therapist that has an interest in mental health? Because that's, 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 li- that's a little, I'm just going to say this, it, it's a little interesting. So, how did you get into that? It's a great question. I was always in my in my younger years was very much primed to become an attorney, and I did in fact study law. I did right. focus on that uh, professionally at a certain juncture in my life. I was also very passionate about becoming a a rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi, and I studied for ordination as well. When my late twenties, I found myself really trying to understand myself with greater depth. And I began to read a lot of books, a lot of psychologically insightful books, a lot of self-help books. And I came, to the, I came to the realization that there was a whole world out there in terms of the psychology of people, kind of the subconscious layer that impacts us, how we grew up, our relationships with our parents, our relationships with our siblings. It kind of opened up a whole world to me. And I often say to my wife, you know, it's ironic, but like had I been exposed to that earlier, maybe I, instead of pursuing a legal career, I maybe would have just gone right into this particular area because it's very, very, it suits me. I kind of feel I like to listen to people. I like to explore with people. And I happen to have been living in Israel for a number of years uh, at that juncture in my late 20s, early 30s. And there was a program that was offered in combination in tandem with the University of North Texas, which was actually a therapeutic problem to, become, to get a, deg- a program to get, to get a degree, to get training, particularly on, on couple dynamics and family dynamics. So that was really my initial, it was my own kind of self-exploration that kind of overlapped into, into educating myself and then ultimately into a, a program where I ultimately received a master's degree. Okay. You know, uh, I, I could I could make a comment about attorneys and and getting into mental health, but I'll just let that one slide. There's, you know, there's a lot that. of different uh, a lot of different crossover in, in the different areas that I function in. That's uh, that's for sure, both uh, legally, religiously, spiritually, psychologically. So there is an interplay, absolutely, in all these different realms. There's there's so many things in psychology that I, I just find fascinating. I really, really do. And and there's so much in 
therapy and in studying sexuality that is just fascinating especially well and i'm i'm actually working with um a woman right now and and ghostwriting a book for her and studying how much our interactions when we're younger with our family and all of that and, and things that happened as we were growing up impact us later in life in in our relationships and it, it's just it's fascinating how things that we we don't even so we don't even consciously remember can have such an impact on us and how she treats that it just, it just I, I fascinating is the only word for it I am just thoroughly enjoying the things I'm learning working on this so and I mean I, I understand some people may not enjoy this at all but I do <laughs> so. no there, there's some when I in my initial stages of marriage when I first got married so I was always interested in learning more about marriage and how to have a great marriage and that's something that, that speaks to me a lot and, and growing with another person and there were some great works. Harville Hendricks is a pretty well-known authority and author in the realm of, of mar marriage. I think it's called Imago uh, Therapy is his, is his area of expertise. And I, I was astounded by the reality. I think he's been married a few times. But, you know, you learn from your mistakes, mm -hmm. I guess. But he yeah, talks right. at a, a great level of depth in his book about we make choices of spouses and partners without being cognizant even of what's driving us. And there's a whole layer of subconscious that, enables us to pick people that maybe are similar to our fathers or our mothers or we're trying to fill certain needs. And his whole methodology of, of refining and correcting his therapeutic model in marriage has a lot to do with understanding kind of our origins and how that speaks to the choices we make in the present. Interesting. Okay. So, now, I know that every religion has very distinct views and perspectives on sexuality. And one of and, and I've learned quite a bit on what different religions think, um, do's and don'ts, that sort of thing. So, and and I have I I do not know many <laughs> details about Judaism. So, what can you tell us about um, Judaism and? Uh, your position as a rabbi and perspectives on sexuality. So thank you for asking that question. It's a very, very important area of Jewish law, of Jewish observance, of Jewish practice, something that often is, is misconstrued or misunderstood. The, okay. a, a Jewish perspective on, on sexuality is one that it's a very healthy aspect of relationships, something that's a very, very, uh, very important. It's reserved for the marriage for the marital bedroom, for the privacy of intimacy between husband and wife. That is certainly a core principle within Judaism. We also have a core principle where we don't necessarily believe, we do believe in the principle of absence makes the heart grow fonder on some level, that we don't allow men and women to interact sexually whenever they want at all times. There are limits, there are certain restrictions, there's a system in place where a married couple will be intimate at certain times, it, it basically patterns after the female menstrual cycle, but there's basically a system in place where there are limits and there are restrictions, but when it's a period when the husband and wife can be intimate, there are no limits, meaning they can enjoy each other to the fullest, 
but at a time of the month or a time of the year, depending on the schedule, when they have to refrain from being interactive. So then it's an opportunity to work more on what we've been talking about till now, on the communication piece, on the verbal cues. It's meant to really strengthen the relationship aside from the physical component, but also to deepen the physical component when that is front and center. Okay, so there, okay, so even when they're married, there's limitations about when they can be sexual? That is correct, yes. Interesting, interesting, okay. But that, that goes along pretty much with the woman's cycle. It is, Interesting. It, is patterned, it is patterned after that, yes, it's patterned after that cycle. It's also built into the concept that part of the Jewish religion, and I think many religions, is perpetuation and procreating. And I think just it works, I think, I'm not a, you know, this is not my area of expertise, but I think also the way the cycle tends to work is that a woman tends to ovulate at the end of the cycle, so when she's coming back with her husband to be intimate, there's more of an opportunity. It's an opportune time potentially for pregnancy and to procreate. It's definitely connected to that as well. Okay. All right. So, okay, so it's, it's made to make it more likely that she would become pregnant. The timing of it, it, it works out that okay. way. So, yes, that is, that is embedded in it. But it's not the only – I mean, we believe in, you know, sexual interactions – to give pleasure to each other, to focus on each, each member of the couple focusing on the other. So that certainly is a great value aside from potential for pregnancy. I'm just, it's just explaining that the timing right. of it, the way it works, works in with that, but it's not always right. connected to that because sexuality is something that plays a role throughout one's life and it's not relevant to whether or not a woman can or can't become pregnant. Right, right. Okay. Okay, so during during the other times, are they free to? I'm, I'm I, I had no clue about this, so I'm just trying to trying to wrap my head around. <laughs> Didn't mean, did mean to throw you off. <laughs> oh yeah, you you completely threw me off with this. Okay. okay. <laughs> I, well, I'm I'm used to a religion that had all kinds of limitations on on you you could do it any time, but. There were all kinds of limitations on what you could do. So, okay, um, this is fascinating. So we're, we're, exa- okay. we're exactly the we're exactly the opposite. Meaning, there's limitations on when you can be intimate with your spouse, so when you can even touch your spouse, even in a, you know in a pretty non-intimate way. We have very rigid restrictions in that regard. But once you're in a period of time when you can be intimate, and it could go on. For example, if one's wife is pregnant, the restrictions don't apply. She doesn't have a, a menstrual cycle, and therefore. You can have a whole nine-month period, uh, period, you know, not using that word kind of, you know, no pun intended, but you could have a whole nine-month period there, a period of time where they could be intimate. And when, once you could be intimate, there are, there are very few, if, if any, restrictions on the engagement in that regard. So it, it is exactly Ooh. the opposite of what you described. Oh, wow. So, yeah, okay. Well, that's going to put a whole new slant on... on any any Jewish friends that are pregnant will say, ha, I know what you're up to. Okay, huh, interesting. <clears throat> however, however, it is limited to one person. I mean, that what's very unique, and I can't speak for other religions, but we, we certainly believe, you know, in the, you know, it's just, it's just between husband and wife. That's it. There's no, you know, it's a monogamous right. relationship. There's no going outside of the marriage. 
Okay. All right. Wow, this is interesting. Okay, so so what about intimacy together? Because, I mean, intimacy and sex are not the same thing. Um, what about just intimacy between the husband and wife during the times when you can't be having sex? Is that limited also? Yes. So that is, that is in fact, limited. Yes. So it's kind of all or nothing in the sense that we oh, believe wow. there. We, but it, it's, built, I mean, it's built one on the other. I mean, we believe that any level of intimacy is very, very powerful. And therefore, it needs yes. to be protected. It needs to, it needs to be guarded. We don't believe in kind of casual interactions and like, you know, pecking someone else's wife on the cheek, ideally, things like that. Meaning intimacy is reserved. I'll tell you a, a very funny story. I don't know if this is, you know, maybe this is a, appropriate or not appropriate, but you, you, you'll decide. But, you know, I heard a story. I heard a story many years ago. I think it's a true story. I'm not, I can't vouch 100% for its veracity, but I heard that a, gr- a group of rabbis basically went to speak to President Clinton. This goes back, obviously, a number of years when he was in the White House. And okay. So this is the, the late 1990s, and President Clinton wasn't there, and, and Hillary was the first lady, and she basically agreed to meet with the rabbis, and she stuck out her hand to shake one of the rabbis' hands. And the rabbi kind of recoiled naturally because in our faith, we don't touch, we don't physically touch even a handshake of a woman who is not our spouse. So, but he didn't want, he's the first lady in the United States. He didn't want to embarrass her. He didn't want to insult her. And in certain instances, maybe certain people maybe would have just shook her hand. This rabbi was very clever. He decided that he was going to explain to her the beauty that we really reserve our commitment and touch is such a powerful thing that we really reserve it exclusively for one special woman in our lives. And it could be violative of that relationship even to even have a handshake with another woman. And apparently Hillary liked the explanation. She said, wow. And we, what's called in Hebrew, the term is nigia, means touch. So we, 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 we call it that we're shomer nigia. We guard against touching a, a woman who's not our wife. So apparently they say that Hillary said, this was while Bill was having all these scandals, apparently Hillary smiled as a joke. She basically said, wow, I wish Bill knew about this uh, shomer nigia thing. Again, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it, it does, whether it's true or not, it does communicate beautifully this, uh, this message or this aspect of our, of our faith that we really believe in the power of intimacy and therefore we, we, want, we want it to be something that's special between husband and wife. We don't want, we don't want them to constantly be together kind of like in, a, in an animalistic way. We want it to be, to be pure and holy and to be special and therefore we try to curtail it at times to make sure that it's most powerful when it's permissible. Interesting. Okay. Huh. This this is just this I had no idea. This is I'm glad I asked this question. This is fascinating. Okay. All right. All right. Huh. Yeah, this this like this is fascinating. Okay. I'm I'm gonna I'll, I I can just see now all all weekend I'm gonna be thinking about something and just I just can't believe. <laughs> okay. Okay. And like I said, next time I see a Jewish friend and they're pregnant, I'm gonna mm hmm. <laughs> Well, in all in all fair in all fairness, there are different sects of Judaism. There are all different types of levels of observance. So I'm explaining to you right now what is the traditional Orthodox approach. It could very right. well be that you could have a Jewish friend who's conservative or reform or or some other aspect or denomination of Judaism. They may not explain it the way I'm explaining it. So I'm giving you kind of a, right. a perspective from the way I see the world. And from the, right. my observance level, so you may, ne- you may not be able to extrapolate it to every Jew in the world, but this is the perspective right. that I live by and that I espouse and teach. 
Oh, yeah, I, I do know some that live extremely differently from that. So, yeah, true. I'm sure, there, I'm, sure, I'm sure there are many. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm just yeah. telling you kind of from my perspective. Right, right. But that's, um, that's interesting. All right. So tell us, now, now that you've completely blown my mind, I, I've, just, I've, I've got to get my, my head back on track here. Okay. So what does your practice look like? So I, you know, I do a lot of things professionally, and primarily uh, most of my time is actually spent more in the realms of I work for a not-for-profit that actually services the disabled special needs community. That's where I spend most of my time. I also work as a congregational rabbi. So I don't have you know, a huge practice. I just don't have the time for that. But I do have a limited amount of clients, kind of the max is four or five at any given time. And I, I work primarily with, with married couples who are struggling with communication, with strengthening their rapport with one another. I work with singles, individuals who are single men and women who are trying to get married, who are struggling to find a spouse. They're having blocks. Different things are holding them back. I try to explore that with them. So that's where I spend you know, most of my energy in the, in the therapeutic world. I, I would think that alone keeps you busy. It definitely could. You know, it's, uh, I, have, I, I, work flexibly with, I work flexibly with my clients, particularly during COVID. A lot of things are done via Zoom, uh, by technology. Some of my clients don't come every week. So it's kind of like it, it, works, it works itself out. You know, it balances itself out. But, yes, right. it definitely can be uh, the, you know, the, it weighs on you, of course, when people come with you to their problems and, and their challenges. And even in my rabbinic role, I deal with a lot of couples that are struggling marriages that haven't worked out, you know, there's couples are divorcing, trying to help them divorce properly and respectfully and looking out for the children. So there are a lot of dynamics and aspects to different roles that I play that, that deal with kind of marriages. Most of the time, helping people get married, like I'm performing a wedding next week, actually out of New York, I'm going to take a quick drive to a nearby uh, state and uh, perform a wedding there, hopefully helping people get married and sometimes helping people get unmarried so that they can get remarried in the appropriate time. <laughs> yes, you do need to do one before you can do the other. So that's the best way to do that. So mm -hmm. is, is, your, is your practice just with people that are part of the Jewish faith or, or is that any, anybody come to you? So you know, over the years, I've been doing this now probably for about 15 years, so when I was, I lived in Manhattan for many years. So there, my practice was very much members of different faiths. I, I certainly worked with Jews as well as non-Jews. And I it was comfortable. I think oftentimes people may select me because they're faith-based. They feel like there's a certain respect for faith, and therefore they may feel comfortable with me, whatever their faith may be. I've definitely worked, you know, with the broader world besides just my narrow community right now. I, I tend to be, this happens to be most of the clients I have now are kind of more part of my community, but I'm definitely somebody who has worked and can work with all different types of people. Right. I think sometimes even if you're not the same faith, it's good to work with somebody who understands having faith and wanting to keep that, whatever your faith may be, keeping that at the forefront. No, I think, I, I think 100%, Nikki, like you're saying, and I think it's the opposite. I often find people who are members of my community who want to kind of have the privacy of not having to talk about all of their kind of uh, 
their messiness with somebody who knows them or might run into them in the supermarket. So they may seek out somebody from a different faith, but, but at the same time, that person has to have a level of understanding where they're coming from, which is a faith-based right. system. So I think you're absolutely right. Right. Well, one, uh, one of my good friends is, um, has a non-denominational church, actually about a block from me. And, mm-hmm. and he does a lot of that sort of thing. And, and even, even people that, that come to his sermons, he's like, you know, you, you don't have to join us. He says, but, you know, be, be at a place where you, you feel comfortable but just make sure that they're they're speaking from the Bible, you know. Make sure that they're not just you know making up their their own things, but you know just make sure that you know. And it and when you need anything, feel free to come to us. We're we're here for you. Okay, so what you you have a book? What inspired you to write a book? So you know, I basically started just kind of writing articles. Different, different thoughts. Actually, I was giving sermons in a very transient congregation in Manhattan, and I found that from week to week, congregants were away, and I was putting a lot of effort into the sermons, and I was trying to think, how can I get this out to a larger audience? Because there was some difficulty, like without the continuity from week to week. So I began to write, put, you know, put pen to paper, begin to kind of write things down, concretize them, began to publish them in some newspapers, magazines, and then one day out of the blue, I got a solicitation to write a book. Somebody was offering to publish a book that maybe I never crossed my mind that I could write a book or that I had material for a book. And after this person reached out, I began to look into it and discuss it with them. And I discovered that based on the writing I had done, I already had about a half a book. And then we kind of focused more on, on, on writing a book. And I wrote a book based on my own life experiences, in essence. And one of the areas that I focus on in my book is marriage and relationships, because I got married at the age of 31, which is rather late in my circles. It may not be late in the contemporary world, but in my religious orthodox circles, it's a little later than most. And I had various challenges, trials, and tribulations to get to the point where I wanted to get to. And I learned a lot from those experiences. I gleaned a lot of knowledge, information, had spoken to a lot of experts and got a lot of insight, observed a lot of people in relationships, and I thought I had what to contribute and what to write. So I ended up putting out a a book about kind of dealing with challenges and trials and tribulations and kind of holding the vision and trusting the process. And I explore that theme within the milieu of relationships and particularly within the milieu of the early, early years of marriage. I'm trying to write part two right now. It's coming along slowly, but I hope, Mm -hmm. uh, I hope in 2021 to hopefully have a, a second part of the book, you know, hopefully ready. Yeah, just write a little bit every, every, you know, on a consistent basis, and it'll get there. That is good advice, but it never seems to happen. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I have learned because I've, I've written a lot of books, and I've, I've just learned you, you can't force creativity. But when you, when you get an idea, jot it down, you know. And, and I, I use the recorder on my phone a lot. And, and if I get an idea, I, I record it or I, I jot it down one of the two because I have learned that just because it's really fresh in my head right now does not mean that it will be when I get home and I have time to work on it. So I, I make sure that I, I save it somewhere while it's fresh, and then I make sure that I remember where I put it so that when I have time to work on it, I can go back and refresh my memory on what it was. So That's a great idea. That's a great idea. I like that a lot. Yeah. I, I it, it's gotten me through a whole lot of books. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. 
and and if it's and if it's just kind of stuck in your head and it's three in the morning, it's a really good idea to get up and make those notes because, like I said, seven or eight or whatever time you get up, not going to be there, not going to be there. So <laughs> I hear. <laughs> I do my best writing at three in the morning. <laughs> so. Wow. I do, I, best, I, have, I do my best. I do my best sleeping at three in the morning, but I, but I hear. I, you. I had a feeling you were going to say that, <laughs> but see, I you know it's just me and my cat usually at three in the morning, so I I can do something about that. <laughs> so, I hear. but yeah, and I, I do really good editing at three in the morning. So, so what what can you? One of the things that you know everybody on the planet seems to be dealing right now is is COVID. So what kind of challenges to marriage and relationships um, dealing with COVID, which, like I said, all of us are dealing with that. And, and you know, being in New York, I, you know, unfortunately, I think you've dealt with more of that, of that than a lot of us have. Thankfully, we haven't had a lot of that. Well, you're fortunate, and we're, we're fortunately in a, a little bit of a good wave right, right now. You know, hopefully things should continue this way. We definitely were hit very hard in March, in April, in May. Thankfully, the summer has been relatively mild, at least in the parts where we live, and schools look like they're going to be opening in the fall, so we're very optimistic and, and feel good with taking maximum precautions. But certainly, like being all pent up in close quarters with uh, somebody who obviously you care a great deal about, but if, you know, what I found is that people who didn't have great relationships before COVID or the advent of COVID – so then putting that pressure and being confined to close quarters without the natural escapes that people tend to use can be very, very challenging and very deleterious and very difficult. People yeah. who have strong relationships, I think, really thrived. You know, during COVID, it was, it was an opportunity to spend more quality time with the people that we love and maybe often neglect or don't have the time to really invest the way we'd like to. So it really is a double-edged sword. I think it was a great opportunity for some people. I think it was challenging for others. I really, I think a lot, a lot of the proof is in the pudding, a lot really dependent on the nature of the relationships. I think when you have a strong relationship and then it meets a challenge, it usually can, can rise to the top and, and thrive. But when you have a, a shaky foundation and then add to it the stresses of a COVID, whether it be financial stresses, whether it be health stresses, emotional stresses, so on and so forth, the insecurities of life, so that could, uh, that could not bode well. Uh, and I, I definitely saw an uptick in my, in my practice during these months because people are, people are, in distress, and, and they certainly need support. I agree with you because, I mean, you know, if if things were rough, people could just, like, take off and go do something else or, or you know, put put space between them. But um, right. you know, when, when, you're, when you're having to stay at home, they didn't have that option. But, you know, yeah, you, you couldn't just take off and go to work or take off and go to your friends or whatever. I mean, you, you, little, literally, unless you were an essential worker, you had to stay home. So, yeah, I think it, and, it forced and I'll people. I'll add. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, it forced people to to face problems that they, you know, otherwise could have just kind of pushed off to the side. And they're like, you know, I'll, I'll just go do this or go do that. or you know, But, you know, you can't you can't do that when you have to stay home. So, right. Yeah, I'll, I think I'll, it I'll add, I'll, I'll add, Go ahead. Yeah, I think, and I'll add that you know a lot of us had children who were not able to go to school, and therefore right. kids were home all day long as well, which creates 
uh, stress in terms of who's responsible for what and so on and so forth, and even less privacy. So yeah, there are a lot of complicating, exacerbating factors. And if the relationship wasn't strong to begin with, uh, I think a lot of people suffered. Right, right. Well, and then, then put on top of that the fact that people weren't working and there was less money coming in. And, and so, yeah, it just definitely, if, if you were ignoring any issues, they were all mm-hmm. being compounded. So... Yeah. The perfect storm, as they say. The perfect storm. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty much. So you have a podcast. Tell us about it. Thank you for asking that. So I recently started something, maybe for about a year or so. It's called the JPP. It's actually the initials of Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I like to look at the word philanthropy not in the sense of giving money away, although that's certainly part of it. Philanthropist is a person who would rather somebody who gives of their time, who contributes to society, who helps improve society. And the Jewish piece of it is that that's a value of the Jewish people, that we like to give, we like to contribute. It's not exclusively a podcast just for Jewish people. It's for any, any person, non-Jew, Jew. It's not really important, but I, it's just because that's kind of the idea of being a philanthropist, of trying to we call it tikkun olam, of trying to improve the world, of enhancing the world. That's one of our great values. So I launched this podcast called the JPP. I've had about 20 episodes so far, and I interview different guests who contribute to the world in, in different ways, and, and, and thankfully it's been well-received so far. Awesome. So, so what do you think about being a podcaster, honestly? I love it. I find it to be, I find it to be a great deal of fun. I really enjoy asking questions, listening to the answers, kind of going deeper, kind of reading the person. I also find it's a great, great forum to potentially network with people that maybe I wouldn't have the opportunity to meet or talk with in another forum, but maybe the value, that's, the value add to them to get some promotion from being on a podcast. I find that it's really a great tool to be able to, to meet people, connect with people, to grow, helps other people, and helps me as well. I think it's a win-win across all all sections. Definitely. It's, I, I say I've, I have learned so much through all these shows, it's unbelievable. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, well, plus I've learned how to produce a podcast. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's an awesome experience. I've, um, this is show number 317 uh, of wow. this show. So, yeah, okay. it's... Um, it's an interesting experience. There, there are days I can't figure out. I just there's just nothing that excites me that I want to talk about. And I'm and it'll, sometimes it'll be the last minute, and, and it'll it'll be like Thursday afternoon, and I'm like, you know, and, and the show airs at nine, and it'll be like five thirty in the afternoon. And I'm like, yeah, okay, now now I know what I'm talk talk about, and I'm like the last yeah. second getting the show ready. But but yeah, it's um, it, it's I I love it. Overall, there's like I said, some days I just can't think of anything I want to talk about. But, but um, I, I thoroughly enjoy having a show. I really do. I find it. I find I find it difficult, kind of the week in, week out. I find to produce new content perpetually and fresh and exciting content. I find it's a challenge. It's really uh, yeah. it's a, a lot of credit to you to having put out so much content. That's great. Yeah, yeah. There, like I said, sometimes it just—it's just hard to come up with something. <laughs> well, and and I want to be excited about what I'm putting out there. 
you know i could I could just mm-hmm. do anything, but i want it, I want it to be something that I can be excited about, you know mm-hmm. and that's that makes it tough that makes it tough some days but i i mean i I always come up with something that i'm I'm excited about, but yeah it it's um doing that every week becomes a little bit of a challenge after after all that time but mm-hmm. but way to go so well welcome to the podcast world. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. So you mentioned you mentioned having children at home while they've been out of school, and they've been out of school for quite a while now. Um, how do children impact relationships? So that's a very <laughs> profound question. That's a deep, it's a deep question. Uh, we mentioned a little bit how children can be a stressor on a relationship, but I think the other direction is even more important in the sense that children really model and echo and reflect that which they're observing in the homes yes. that they're growing up in. Meaning if they see, they see tranquility, continuity between their parents, they will echo that, they will reflect that. It goes back to what we spoke about earlier in our discussion. They will feel emotionally secure in their attachments to then be able to attach to others in a healthy way. And right. they'll also get a perspective on being able to give and receive. The model, when you're a child, you tend to be a taker. You're receiving. And then as we mature and as we grow and as we move on in life, so then we ideally shift roles from being a taker to being a giver. If we have parents who invest in us and give to us and they fill us up, then we're able to then go and and give to others in a healthy way. If, unfortunately, we're raised in homes where we're not given what we need emotionally, we tend to look at relationships from the perspective of trying to take from another as opposed to give to another, and that's where a lot of relationships run into are fraught with danger because their needs aren't being met because they have unrealistic expectations from their, from their significant other to repair that which their parents maybe deprive them of, so on and so forth. So it's important to understand that entire family dynamic and the family system. If you're in a, if you're in a relationship, whether it's a marriage or not a marriage, but whatever relationship you're in, and if there are children who are part and parcel of that family unit, so that, you know, that, that, that behooves the adults in the room to kind of behave like adults and to take on the responsibility of modeling properly for the next generation. Very true. You know something I've noticed, and this may, it may just be in people that I've seen, but I've watched, and, I, and I've only seen them through later teen years or in their adulthood, but I've talked to people that knew them when they were younger. Because, I, like I said, I, I'm very interested in order kind of thing. Um, and I've, I've seen, like, um, one example is somebody who felt extremely entitled to everything that she wanted and if she didn't get it, would do anything, even to the point of setting up her father and having him jailed in order for her to get what she wanted. Okay? And another one who, no matter how much is given to her, it's never enough. And, and doesn't see the value of, of what she's given at all. And both of these people their parents gave them everything they wanted materially. 
Okay, mm -hmm. but as far as giving them emotional support um, and this sort of thing, it it was it doesn't seem to have really been there from the people that I've talked to. You know, the the parents weren't really around. They weren't really as present as they really should have been as they were growing up. That kind of thing. And and when they were given things materially. It was, I love you, and a present was always involved. I love you, and something material was involved. You know, so it was, it was love equates something material. It, it, it was love equates a present. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar. You made a fascinating point in terms of sometimes you find young adults who seemingly have everything, from a materialistic standpoint, but yet they seem to be lacking. And unfortunately, it's a cycle in the sense that we talk a lot in the therapeutic world about trying to break, break the cycle. You know, the parents who weren't able to give, in your example, the kids their emotional, weren't able to meet their emotional needs or always just gave them a physical item, that's in all likelihood because their own parents, uh, the grandparents in this scenario, also weren't able to, weren't able ideally to... In the olden days, you know, 50, 60 years ago, let's say, people were not comfortable talking about emotional health, emotional well-being, openness, and, and unfortunately, a lot of people suffer because of that because it just wasn't, it, what people lacked, sometimes, it could be the most loving, wonderful people, they just don't have the tools or the means right. of communication of communicating affection because they ne themselves never got that. And again, it's a cycle, and a cycle often yeah. has to be broken in a therapeutic milieu. True. Well, it, like I said, it just it was it was funny because everybody that I talked to, like I said, it was always love was mentioned right as they were given a present of some kind, you know. So it was it was very much in their mind, love was associated with being given a present of some kind, you know. It wasn't just I love you. And, and a hug or or some show of affection. It was it was just it was just a strange strange scenario. And and I even I even saw it when when like the grandmother or the father or whatever would, would give them something and, and that was exactly how they did it. It's like, dang on the right. <laughs> that is exactly what they did. Mm -hmm. And even even when I said something like, like No I don't I'm like, Yeah you do. I, I, I saw you do it, you know. But, I mean, if, if that's done, you know, over 10, 15 years, that's, that's how the mind registers that, you know. So just, mm -hmm. just an interesting sort of something I thought I'd mention. No, I understand. But it's, um, like I said, those little subconscious things that that pattern gets in our mind, and that's, that's how you, that's how the mind sees things. Mm-hmm. So, let me see. Um, tell us some about being a rabbi and a spiritual guide. I, I feel very confident that very few of my listeners have a perspective on that. Okay. Some of your listeners probably have, uh, I would hope, have some sort of clergy person in their lives. It may be a priest. It may be, you know, so, uh, you know, I hope on some level there's, uh, you know, there's some some model, somebody in their lives who they look up to. And I think that it's a challenge because, you know, you want to be, 
you want to be like one with the guys, quote unquote. You want to be somebody who can relate to people, who's relatable, who's down to earth, people feel comfortable with, who people feel you can be friends with. At the same time, you kind of have to hold yourself a little bit apart, you know, as somebody that people can look up to or somebody that people can aspire to be more like. It's a very delicate balance, one that I think many religious leaders struggle with, many religious leaders fail at. Uh, It's not, not easy, particularly in these trying times in our country when we're dealing with a, you know, a once in a century pandemic, when we're dealing with uh, race, tremendous racial tensions across the country, and we're dealing with a, a big political, uh, a lot of fracture, political parties, etc., and a big election coming up. It's a very complex time, and people definitely need people that inspire and that guide and uplift. That's a voice I think that's been missing. Uh, in our society right now, in the societal fabric. I'm not saying it doesn't exist in certain places. It does, and there are a lot of great spiritual leaders and mentors, but unfortunately, particularly across social media, you don't necessarily always you know, connect with that or see that. So I think that being a, a spiritual leader or being a rabbinic personality or being an influencer is, somebody that I, is a role that I take, take very seriously, whether it's my congregation, whether it's my broader community, whether it's across social media platforms where I, where I tend to publish content and be active. I feel that it's uh, important to try to uplift, to inspire. I put out daily, mostly almost daily videos, five-minute brief insights. You know, I post them across different platforms, just trying to uplift and inspire in these trying times and these challenging times. So I think that's, that's the opportunity and that's the challenge that, uh, is, is, that exists in the current period in time in which we live. Very true. I think any of us, no matter who we are, trying to be encouraging there's not a lot of people doing that <laughs> you know I, I saw I, it, it amazes me the people that are in the public eye that spend all their time on Facebook bashing people and it's like you know can't we share something encouraging you know no matter who you are can't we share something just and sometimes even just if I I, I go through back, back through my memories and I'll, I'll just see something some positive meme you know and just share it just because I mean you know people I'm connected to need need something to like be encouraging and and or something to make them smile or or something positive you know or occasionally you'll see an encouraging or positive news story. I mean, there aren't a lot of those out there anymore, unfortunately. But, I mean, I try to make an effort to share something encouraging because, Mm -hmm. like I said, all of us need to see something good. And, like I said, there's just not enough of that. My gracious. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's enough negativity out there. If you want to find it, that's easy to find. But we need (laughs) something, something positive. We really do. Mm Mm-hmm. So what, what kind of lessons have you learned during the, this whole COVID-19 thing so far? You know, there's a lot of, a lot of lessons, a lot of lessons. I think I've been, I talked, I've, been talking about, I've been talking about this a lot this week. I think it's a microcosm of a bigger uh, relevant point, which is that we've had a few power outages in our neck of the woods. We had one on Tuesday. We had one again today due to the stormy weather. And thankfully, yeah. this is not a major tornado or anything like that, but we have been impacted. And one night this week, we basically went to sleep without electricity. 
And I think we just take the most basic things in life for granted. And I think, yes. just, I, you know, life was booming and everything was going great and don't even give a thought to like anything, travel to family. And I, I believe in a spiritual sense, like the, you know, the master of the universe, whatever faith, you know, generated or based, you know, belief each person has, but the, you know, the, you know, some people say the universe, whatever I say God, but the point is that, that, you know, there's a message being sent to society, to mankind at large, and that is that we need to kind of reassess, take stock. Everybody needs to kind of assess just their own lives. It's important. Where are we going? Where have we been? You know, kind of, kind of retrench and figure out kind of what's really priority, what's really important, what matters most, which I think should be across the board is really health, uh, relationships, these are really the core of everything else is gravy. You know, everything else is gravy. You know, you need to have some money to, you know, put food on the table, etc. But in terms of prioritizing the spiritual over the material is something that I think is a, a lesson. Just kind of like to wake up and to reassess and to not get caught up in, in the speed of life, but to kind of be able to treasure each and every moment and not take things for granted. And just to wake up in the morning and be grateful and be thankful Many of us have a lot, a lot to be grateful for, and I think a lot of times we just kind of like lose sight of that, like the fact that we're breathing, the fact that we're here, the fact that we can have this conversation. That's essential, and that's, just, that's, that's a privilege, and we need to kind of maybe take stock, go back to the basics a little bit more. Yeah, that's, well, that's when, when this all first started, that was, that was one of my things. I was hoping that people were going to start to realize that kind of thing, and it it sometimes it takes something that big for people to just kind of wake up, you know. Right. There, there's all this right. talk about being woke. I'm like, okay, forget all that crap. But you know, can can you just kind of stop and just say, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff that people just take for granted every single day. Can can we stop taking things for granted and say, you know, maybe I don't need all this stuff I thought I needed and I'm appreciative that I'm alive. I'm really glad I wake up every morning, which I am, <laughs> you know. Um I, I got fighting a whole lot of health stuff, but I'm I'm really excited when I wake up each morning because I woke up and I I don't have the the biggest and best and greatest, but that I, I don't care about any of that. I I've got what I need. I've got a roof over my head. And right. you know, I, I I'm making it. You know, not making it with any flash or any of that kind of stuff. But that doesn't matter. You know, and maybe no. maybe you know it, that's okay. It should be okay. I think you I think you reminded me of an important point also, which is I think too many of us are looking at other people. Too many of us are measuring ourselves vis-a-vis -vis what's going on with our neighbor, with our friends, and. It's, it's a time we kind of get all shut into our own houses, basically. The message is like, just look at yourself. There's really nowhere else to look. You don't have to compare yourself to anybody else. We're all on our own unique trajectories. Yep. You know, you do, you do you. You do you. You know, everybody has exactly. to do that. And that's, do uh, I think that's a critical point. Exactly. Do you to the best of your ability. Mm -hmm. and, and let everybody else do them to the best of their ability. You, don't compare yourself to everybody else. That doesn't make any difference. Exactly. You're, you're not. Exactly. You're not doing their life. They're doing their exactly. life. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So, how can people find you? So the easiest way to find me is on my website. It's actually rabbi david m cohen dot com. Not David, but David. Rabbi David D O V I D 
mcohen.com. On my website, you can find my book, my podcast, links to all my social media presence. So that's really the easiest way to find me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you, you officially blew my mind on a couple things, but that's, that's okay. I, I enjoy learning new stuff. <laughs> I, try, I, try, I try to keep it interesting. You know, that's what I say all the time. I like to keep it interesting, keep people wondering. That makes life more interesting, more fun. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And listeners, I hope that you got lots of interesting information and learned new things. Thank you very much for being with me today. And listeners, I will be with you next time on Ready for Love Radio. Some clothes.